0: Good morning. Again, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the sixth chapter of Genesis. You have a bulletin insert this morning. You can follow along. Our uh, our points are there for you. We're going to be covering a lot of territory: Genesis chapter six through Genesis chapter nine. And we're not going to read all that. So what we're going to do is jump in. We'll deal with uh, various parts of. Um, these chapters as we get to them in our points, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we want to stop right now. We want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you'll open it. You'll nourish us by it. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips concerning it be acceptable in your sight. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to pick up a, a children's Bible, uh, virtually any children's Bible, and, um, and turn probably to the front section of it, you will undoubtedly find a panel given to Noah's Ark. It finds its way into pretty much every children's Bible. I've never seen a children's Bible that doesn't have the story there. When Jody and I had our first child, when we had Colin, who just happens to be here today, starting a spring break. When we had Colin, we were living in Louisville, Mississippi. And I remember Jody kind of going through the process and maybe consulting me a little bit um, to come up with a theme for Colin's room. And um, and the theme that we came up with was Noah's Ark. And so... Grandparents jumped in and, and, you know, rose to the occasion. Y'all are in a different spot today. And they, they made bumper pads and we had, you know, bed ruffles and curtains and we had wallpaper and I remember, uh, just different items around the room. One of them was a silver, someone gave us a silver piggy bank that was Noah's Ark. And, um, we had lamps that were Noah's Ark and lampshades that were Noah's Ark and, we did the whole room in Noah's Ark theme. Colin, I'm so sorry. I hope you're not traumatized today by surrounding you with, with images of a global flood which wiped out all civilization. <laughs> Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark, is most certainly not a children's story. It tends to be cute because it has animals in it and it has a, a pretty boat and a, and a beautiful rainbow. But to get to Noah's Ark, to get to that beautiful portrait that's painted at the very end of the story in Genesis 9, you've got to go through a whole bunch of mess. Some really ugly stuff. You have to go through the decimation. If you're a global flood guy, You've got to go through the decimation of the entire planet. If you're a local flood guy, then you've got to go through the decimation of the known world. Regardless, a lot of death and destruction to get to that beautiful picture of Noah and the white dove and the beautiful rainbow and the ark. This morning, <coughs> Genesis chapter 6 Through Genesis chapter 9, we're going to be talking about the days of Noah, and we're going to be talking about it under these three points, the sorrowful situation, the solemn solution, and the surprising sign. So let's just get to work, shall we? The scene is set in the first few verses of Genesis 6, and it is a distressing, it is a sorrowful scene to say the least. And here's what we read. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there. About verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of the human race and how it had, how wicked the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Men and women everywhere were revealing the brokenness of humanity at every turn. It wasn't just that they were doing bad things. That's not what the passage says. Notice the way that it's put for us at the second part of verse 5. He says, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. What a packed statement. What a revealing statement. What a sorrowful statement if you look at it. Moses doesn't say these people acted wickedly all the time. That's not what he says. He says that their thoughts and the inclinations of their hearts were wicked and sinful. They didn't just do corrupt things. They were corrupt in their hearts. We repeated a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Genesis chapter 3. I repeated that often given quote that R.C. Sproul used where he says, he asked a very important question. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? And that's not a play on words. That's a very serious question. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? And the question is meant to really get at the heart of the matter. And Moses is doing that right here for us. We sin because we have a sin nature. Remember, we saw that in Genesis 3, that all humanity fell in Adam and Eve's first sin. And so when we're born into the world, we're born with a bent towards sin. Our nature is that of a sinner. And that's what the writer is saying here. Men and women everywhere, the only inclination of their heart was always wicked all the time. Moses is making it very clear that the world was in bad shape. Now, very hard to understand the first four verses of chapter 6. There's strange stuff going on, but the indication that it is happening, whatever it was that was taking place, it wasn't good. And it was this movement away from God as men and women followed this inclination that was in their heart. Every Notice what he says. Every inclination was only evil all the time. Every inclination, only evil all the time. He couldn't have said it more emphatically than that. Psalm 14, David says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Verse 3, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Jesus asked the question of his disciples in Matthew 15, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. We are sinners because our nature is that of a sinner. It's bad news. It's difficult news for us. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis talks about this as well. Because sometimes this perception, right, that we are, especially after we come to Christ, we have it all together, we've got it all sewed up, and, and we don't wrestle with these inclinations of the old flesh, of the old man. If you go and you read the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, which I believe is the Apostle Paul post-conversion, he lays very clearly out for us a desperate struggle. He says, the things that I want to do, those I don't do. But the things that I don't want to do, those I keep on doing. And then he laments, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Where are you at in that spectrum? Where do you see your life? Are, are, are you thinking at this point in your life, I've got this under control. I'm, I'm winning. The, I'm getting better. I, I'm, the, I'm got this all figured out, this whole sin thing. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis puts this in mere Christianity. He says, when a man is getting better, When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you are awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you're making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you're drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. He was saying, saying, listen, in the trajectory of life, as we're moving through life, even even in even having been redeemed, even being in Christ, even being sanctified, as that process is ongoing, the older we get, the longer we're in Christ's the more we should realize and understand that our hearts were originally very corrupt and very far from Him. And we are in desperate need of continued and ongoing repair. The situation was very desperate. Every inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. And when we come to Christ, it's not an instant cleanup. It's an ongoing process. You know, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, in that story, John Bunyan describes this as a man going into a house. And and in the house, there's dust everywhere. And so there's this, this process of sweeping that up. But as he sweeps... The dust goes into the air and then it's settling. And and as he opens new rooms, new doors into new rooms, it's dusty. Again, there's more and more and more in this room and that room and the other room. And you and I, as we move through life and we open these doors, it kicks it up again. Because the Lord is still working on us and he's not yet complete. And, And the more you come to know Christ, the more you come to know the depth of your own depravity, that Christ is at work repairing. And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Where are you at there? A bad man? A good man? Do you understand the depth? Moses is laying it out for us here in this passage, and he was looking at the world. God was looking at the world. He was distressed because he saw just how bad his creation was. Here's the result. The result was that God, Yahweh, the one who created man, the one who created earth, was very grieved. The NIV says that God regretted that he had made man on earth. Some translations regrettably translate it that Yahweh repented or that he was sorry, that the Lord was sorry. It's not the best. It wasn't a change of mind. What seems to be communicated here is is is. Moses is trying to communicate it the way you and I would communicate it, right? So he's communicating and he's using terms that you and I use, and he's using them with reference to God. And God was very disappointed, disquieted. He, he was he, he, His heart ached. He, he had a sorrow, if you will, over what was going on with his creation. And so from this sorrowful situation, the passage moves into a solemn solution. The solution is twofold. It's not singular, okay? There are two parts to the solution that are here. What is the part you always hear about? What is it? It's the flood. But guess what? There's another solution lurking in the passage. There's another solution here in this passage. So the first is the one that we always think about, the one that we always focus on is that the Lord was going to send a flood upon the earth and judge it that way. He would wipe out all the creatures, everything, the birds of the air, beasts of the field, everything that walked on the ground. All humanity would be caught up in that flood and they would be wiped out. But there's a second part to the solution that we often miss, and that is Noah. Noah is a part of the solution, and God has moved towards Noah, and he calls Noah for his purposes. So in the midst of all of God's heartache, as he looked out and he saw this mess of humanity, there's Noah. The NIV gives it to us in verse 8. Look at it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now, the the, the passage better translated, but, but Noah saw or Noah found grace in the eyes of God. It really is the first mention of the grace of God. John Currid, RTS professor of Old Testament, He he commented about this, that the arrangement of the passage in Hebrew indicates that this isn't the introduction of a new fact. Rather, it's the telling of something that has already happened. It's the recounting of the fact that God had graciously worked in Noah, bringing him to himself at some time in the past. And now he's here on scene. And he's alive. He's alive to the grace of God, and he's living as God would have him live. Noah had a relationship with God. He had been shown the grace of God before, and now he's living in that grace up to this point. Now, it's a very important, it's a very important caveat, if you will, point, because typically what happens here is people jump straight to verse 9, look at it. In verse 9, what do we find out? That Noah was a righteous man. And typically that's where people go instantly. Well, there was Noah. All these people were over here doing wicked. Noah's over here living a righteous life. The question you want to ask yourself is, why is Noah over here living a righteous life if every inclination of the human heart is always evil all the time? And the answer is grace. God had graced Noah with his favor prior to Noah ever doing anything righteous. And that his righteousness was a response to the grace that God had shown him. Does it sound familiar? Because it's that way all the way through Scripture. It's that way in your life. It's that way in my life. We don't ever do anything. We don't ever move towards God until he first graciously moves towards us. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or as the King James, a new King, King James translated, translated Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Was it wasn't because Noah was a grand guy? It was because God had been at work in him, preparing him, preparing him for just such a time as this where Noah and his family would be the remnant of God's grace for all humanity. So the solemn solution then is twofold, right? It is God's judgment and it's God's grace. God's judgment, which isn't final and it isn't total. It isn't total and it isn't final. Because there's a gracious solution at work. In the person of Noah and his family. And so there are two parts to the solution, and that is God's judgment and God's grace, both of them here in this passage. I want you to begin right here to tie this story with the other stories. Because I want you to see a thread as we work our way through Genesis. This is one of the threads that you're going to see, is that in the midst of things being really bad, there's always a glimmer of God's grace. There's always a glimmer of hope, if you will. There's always a note of hope in the midst of things that are really, really difficult and really bad. And, and that's because there's a promise in Genesis 3.15, and that promise is that there is going to be one who will crush the head of the serpent, and he will have his heel bitten. And we talked about that when we looked at Genesis 3. And that's the note of hope. There's a promise there. And that promise is going to work its way out. And and we saw that it's going to be the seed of the woman, right, at battle and at war with the seed of the serpent. And so that's another thread, that's another part of the story. You can you can start asking yourself, okay, who in this story is the seed of the woman and who in this story is the seed of the serpent? Because they're at odds, they're at battle, They're they're in a constant battle and that battle is going to work its way all the way through the book of Genesis. We're going to see it time and time again. And so you can begin connecting these back. So in this story of Noah, you know who the seed of the serpent is. It's all of the evil and wickedness of humanity. He's had his way with them, and they are following him, their father. And then there's the seed of the woman, and that is Noah and Noah's family. And maybe this is where, if you were just reading this story, and you read about Noah, you would ask the question, is he the one? Because one's coming, right? You know that from Genesis three fifteen. One is coming who is going to do righteous things. Is Noah the one? If you didn't have the rest of the account, if you didn't have Exodus through Revelation in your Bible, and you were just reading Genesis and you were just now getting to Noah, you would ask the question, Is Noah the one? And then you couldn't wait to turn the next page, right? Is Noah the guy? Is Noah the guy? And what do you find out? Yes and no. He is. He is a righteous one. He is a seed of the woman. He is following after the heart of God. And, and he does bring salvation to the people. But then you got that dern vineyard story. And you go, pah. Okay, not yet. Maybe he's coming. Maybe he'll be on the next page. Is there someone else? And we're going to find out there is someone else in just a couple of weeks. And who is that next guy? Abraham. Okay, so you see the thread that's going to be all the way through? And I just want you to see it because you would be asking the question, and you should be asking the question, is Noah the one? Well, he is one. And he is following after the heart of God. And so because he is that, he becomes a shadow for us, right? He becomes a picture for us of the one that is coming. So Noah, rightly, should point you beyond himself to the one that will one day come. And that person is obviously Christ. Well, this brings us to our last point, which is actually the longest point. We're probably going to do a little faster than a couple of these other ones. The surprising sign when you get to chapter eight. okay, you you find Noah. So we have a flood that's now occurred. If you came wanting to hear all the details of the ark and where it is, I told you we're going to be talking about the people. And so, you know, the flood story, you know, about the big boat that he built, you know, about the rescue of the animals. And they weren't two by two. okay? they brought seven of the clean animals. All right. Forget it. All right. You can read all those details, but when you get to chapter 8, in verse 20, what do we find Noah doing? We find Noah in this relationship with the Lord, building an altar, and that altar was pleasing. The the sacrifice that he put on it was pleasing to the Lord, and and he was pleased with Noah's offering. And so he begins to engage Noah, and we read in chapter 9, verse 9, that God established a covenant with Noah. This is a really big point. And in, in, in the story, in the Bible as a whole and in Genesis, because this is the first time that we get this word covenant. So God is, he's doing something new. He's establishing this relationship with Noah, because that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a relationship. And in the Bible, the relationship that that is a, when we talk about a covenant, it's always God. Establishing a relationship with us, with someone. In this case, it's with someone, and it's also with creation. We'll talk about that. One author has pointed out that here in this section of Genesis 9, that there are at least three relationships that are in view as God communicates with Noah. First, there's the relationship with the earth. And what we find in the relationship of the earth is that there is a balance. Okay, We've, We get the reminder, you'll notice some of the similar language that's used here in Genesis 9 it is coming out of Genesis chapter 2. So similar language is given to, to Noah that was given to Adam. And that is, he's to be fruitful and to multiply. He's to go out into the earth. He's to subdue it. And so, there's, there's a rehash now, kind of re-giving, a re-issue, if you will, of the cultural mandate that is given, that was given to Adam, is now reissued to Noah. So there's a connection, obviously, going on here. But at the same time, there, there's a restructuring. Back in the garden, they were given all of the plants to eat. Now when they come off the boat, Genesis chapter 9, they're giving everything to eat. That now they become carnivorous as well, but carnivorous with a twist. They aren't to they're to drain the blood out of the animals. And this is a really kind of what it is. Some some authors think it's a sign of respect towards creation that That they, because the animals were created by God as well, and the blood that flows through their veins is their life, they were to drain that out before they consumed the animal. Okay? And, and that, those instructions are given again in the book of Leviticus, they're expanded upon, but here, very simply, they're given to us. And, and what it shows is, yes, you can eat the beasts of the field, but you do so responsibly. You do so as I have told you and, and the ways that I govern, okay? We don't go out and just wantonly destruct and kill and maim, but we do so very orderly and with purpose. It's a part of the cultural mandate. It's a part of to go into the world and subdue all things. The job must go on, but there's a relationship here with the earth. And Noah is to tend it. He's to take care of it because it's God, because God created it. The second, there's a relationship with people all over the earth. I want you to notice, isn't it interesting, okay? So things are really bad before Noah goes into the boat, right? All Everybody, every inclination of their hearts is always evil all the time. Noah comes off the boat, and the first thing that God tells him is what? If you take a life, your life will be taken. You think God knows where the inclination of the human heart is still yet? Absolutely. He still knows that He's dealing with a sinful fallen humanity, and so He begins to build those guardrails in. And so one of the things that's given here is, if you take one, if you take someone's life, your life will be demanded of you. And if a beast, and don't ask me all of this, but if a beast takes the life of a human, his life will be demanded of him. There will be consequences. All of those sorts of things. But there's balance. There's the sanctity of human life that is being laid out for us. Why? It's a reissue of 126. Because we're all made in the image of God. And it doesn't make any difference if, They know Christ or they don't know Christ or they're from here or they're from there or they live this way or they live that. It doesn't make any difference. We're all made in the image of God, every last one of us. And then here's the third and final relationship. The third and final relationship is with God. In verse 8, God is establishing his covenant with Noah and with creation. And he promises that he will never do that, not just to humanity, but to creation again. Why? This this is very important. It it instructs us and it tells us, okay, um, being green is really a big deal, right? It is really, it's a big deal. But people... Today, they're green, and they tell us that the reason we need to be green is very selfish. It's for us, right? Don't pollute the water because you're going to need to drink that water. Don't pollute the air because you're going to need to breathe that air. Okay? That's okay. But what about, what about just the fact that God promises, Romans chapter 8, that creation itself is groaning to what? Be redeemed. And that our redemption, Christ paying for us and the promise that he will one day come and restore us is a promise to creation that he will come and restore all creation as well. It's not going to do away with. So the planet that you and I are living on, I believe, will be remade, renewed, but it will be this planet. You and I don't go away to the clouds. We're not going to be up there strumming harps and, you know, floating around on a big white puffy cloud. You're going to be here. I love this, Harold, don't you like? The turkey hunting will be really great in the new creation. Right? Because God is in the process of restoring. So He's not just making a covenant with us, He's making a covenant with creation. Because He created all of this, and it's good. And when you go to the beach and you go to the mountains and you take all that in, absolutely. It's majestic. God made it that way. He made it. Listen, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Oh, that you and I were as consistent as the heavens are. But they're fallen. They fell in our sin. Creation fell with us, but God will restore it as well. Now, isn't that a much better reason to take care of creation? That God made it, he loves it, he will one day redeem it? As opposed to, better take care of it because it's going to take care of you? I mean, that's a good reason. But to give glory to God is an even better reason. Because God made it and he will one day redeem it. So, verse 8, God is establishing his covenant with Noah and with creation. And as he establishes this covenant, that he will never again do what he's done in this judgment on the earth. He's at the same time promising something beyond that. Because humanity, right, our sin, the wages of sin are death. We're going to die. There's going to be something. Something must happen, right? God can't simply look away. And so he promises, though, here that he will never do it again this way. He won't send a catastrophic flood and wipe out all creation and humanity again. But there's still sin. And so he gives a sign to Noah, and the sign that he gives is a rainbow. Now, there would have been rainbows prior to this, but he adopts the sign. He adopts the rainbow, and he uses it to promise to Noah that he will never again do this. In the midst of the clouds, it is interesting, isn't it, that the only time you'll ever see a rainbow is when? In the rain. The only time you'll ever see a rainbow is in the midst of a storm. So in the midst of the storm... You can be reminded of God's promise, not only that he won't judge the earth again that way, but that he himself will take the judgment for us. John Curd points out that the word, there is no word for rainbow in the Hebrew. So the word that's translated here, rainbow, because we know it's a, we know we you have an inclination of the sign in the sky, hey, being a rainbow. We know the colorful rain you know, goes through the prism. I don't remember all that, but you know what I'm talking about. So all of that happens, and as it happens, there's a bow. You you rarely ever see the complete. Sometimes you'll go out and you look at the maybe the sun and there's rain and that sort of thing, and you'll see the complete rainbow. It's a circle, but when you see it, typically you see just half of it, and you see that bow. And so the word that's used here is actually of a warrior's bow. And John Curd points out and others have pointed out that that one possible meaning that's taking place there is that that bow is pointed away from the earth, pointed towards the heavens, signifying that one day, one from the heavens, God himself would take the penalty for us. Either way, it's a reminder that he's not going to judge us the way that he's judged us in the past. And it points again and it reminds us once again that there is sin in the, sin in the world, but that God is going to deal with it in a fashion that is good for his people. And so coming... Obviously, down the road of peace, we're going to be introduced. There's going to be an entire sacrificial system that's given to us. And that sacrificial system over and over and over again, the repeating process of sacrificing animals and the letting of blood, showing to us that there must be death in order to pay for our sin, ultimately culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus will take the blow for us. Oh, you and I can be thankful for the picture of the ark, for Noah, for his faithfulness, and for the goodness of God that he has entered into this relationship with us, not just Noah, but that the promise remains for us that God will never again do it the way that he did it back then, but that he will take care of our sin in a way that's fitting for the creator of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you. We give you praise for the ways in which you've loved us, the ways in which you've shown to us your love. Thank you for the story of Noah. Father, frightening example that our sin deserves your just judgment. But what a provision you've made for us. And We get to see in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We thank you. We bless you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing the first and the last stanza of number 63, All Creatures of Our God and King. The first and the last.